Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Dan Blakely served in the 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, deploying six times to support the global war on terror. He graduated from Appalachian State University with a bachelor's degree and then two master's degrees. He started the school solar-powered racing team that designed and built two solar-powered race cars, competing in six international races and placing on the podium five separate times. Now, Dan's transition from the military to the civilian world was not easy. Over the years, he has seen firsthand a trend in the veteran community which paralleled his own. Dan's passion for veteran success and telling their stories was the inspiration for his first book, The 20-Year War, which we will talk about today, in which he collaborated with fellow Ranger Tom Amenta and with these incredible portraits from the groundbreaking photographer, Bo Simmons, who you may have already heard on the podcast before this. Now, just a little bit about this book. This book is breathtaking, it's personal, it's raw, and it's very, very real. It has 71 gripping stories that you will not read anywhere else. The 20-Year War is a look into the journeys of American service members fighting in and then leaving behind a war that spanned two decades. These stories come from people from past guests like past guest retired Ranger Battalion Commander J.C. Glick, former professional football player and Green Beret Nate Boyer, and former UFC fighter who is still active duty Special Forces, Tim Kennedy, just to give you an indication of the caliber of warriors in this fabulous book. To pre-order your copies of The 20-Year War, go to 20yearwar.com. Dan, thank you so much for being on and for standing by as I got through that long string on that kite. But I wanted to give everybody a lot of context about what we're talking about today, why this is so important, and the, the mission of what we're trying to get done with the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Marcus, thank you for having me on. And and uh, the fellow producers as well um, at different episodes to really share the different perspectives. Because I think that's one thing that the book does really well is share the separate perspectives because no matter how tied into something you can be, everybody has a different experience. And that's exactly the message that's shared behind the book as well as even though everybody serves in the military that's telling their story, there's a different thread to every single story. Yeah, uh, Tom and Bo reflected that. They were saying how I think even Bowie expanded more. He says, you know, I, I was there for all these interviews and sometimes we'd interview two or three at a time and he expected it to be sort of the same thing just from a different, but he says every single one of them was so unique. And he said, and then when you look at the portraits, it just gives this extra dimension to the the realness and the the truth behind the words. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's the point and that's the vision, you know, we, we had from the beginning was we don't want people to have a preconceived notion of what these people are, who they are, what they're supposed to be. 
And although we're all veterans, it was all a choice we made to serve the country. Absolutely. And it's all something that we decided to take up the torch and, and be there for the American public and really for our allies and, and those that are oppressed around the world. And those stories of service are what shapes each individual who decides to serve, but it doesn't define who they are. And that's the most powerful and important thing that I think a lot of people who read this book are going to see and read. And the portraits do an incredible job of really telling that yeah. outside of just the story. Yeah, these portraits, I've got to see a couple of them. And uh, it's really compelling. And even for you to see the, the portrait of you as you were starting off and then where you are now, it really puts a, a beautiful book into the, the story that everybody is telling. The 71 people talking about what it meant to them and how it still affects their lives even today, whether they're still fighting it or if they're, they're out. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's sharing their perspectives, their ideas and what they've gained and what they've transitioned uh, out of the military, what they've taken with them post-military. But what was really, really incredible, and I'll keep circling back to this, is we asked every veteran the same question. We asked them, you know, what is one life lesson or one mantra or something that you gain perspective from your service in the military? And it was incredibly surprising. I thought we were going to get a lot of the same answers, a lot of similar things, themes that you hear in the military, you know, leaders eat last, you lead from the front, like all these different things that you you normally hear and it's it's ingrained in you. But instead we heard the things that I wasn't expecting and we heard 71 unique uh, life lessons and mantras that they live by today. And yes, it's something maybe they picked up from the military, but some of them aren't. There's, there are things they adapted either prior service or something that they learned after service that now they're reflecting on and connecting the dots of that transition and being a civilian and how important the lessons they learned in the military has really carried into their transition. And sometimes that lesson means even more in the civilian sector once you're out because now it has much more gravity to it. Uh, again, this idea of, of team, this idea of support, this idea of being squared away, especially in the civilian sector, it it can make a big, big difference. Maybe not necessarily life and death, but when it comes to business, when it comes to entrepreneurship, when it comes to leadership, when it comes to being a father, a spouse, mm -hmm. it absolutely matters. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you, you said it in the intro, and it's absolutely true. I I struggled transitioning out of the military. What to me, leaving the military was closing a book and opening a new one. There was not a chapter in my life. It was literally starting over. It was something new, and. You know, it took me a really long time to realize that that was the wrong mentality to have. And there's so many veterans that I've talked to who have really the same mindset who said, you know, I did my service. I, it was my choice to serve, you know, but now I've got to move on and I, I need to do something different. And sure, it is a moving on to something else, but you can't forget the past. You can't forget the people you served with. You can't forget the life lessons and the, you know, the experiences that you've gained through service. And it's something that you really need to take with you and, and share it with others. And that's, again, going back to why I had the inspiration of this book was we cannot hold on to these stories. We can't decide that, you know, the, the history that's contained in these stories are going to be forgotten. The life lessons that are contained in 20 years of combat are forgotten. There's so many experiences in the last 20 years, in the last two decades that no other time in our in our civilization, you know, within the U.S., have we ever experienced something like this? Sure, we've had massive wars, and we've had more people serving, 
but for a, a war to carry on for this long and to have multiple generations serving in the same war, it's just something that I think is unfathomable to a lot of people. And they forget that it's been going on for so long. Well, and like you said, a lot of people that are listening to this are readers, they're leaders, they're CEOs, they're executives, and they want the book, you know, The Seven Steps to Effective Leadership, whatever it is. But if you want the real stuff, and just like what you're saying, stuff that happened in the last 20 years in combat, earned, not learned. Mm -hmm. And just like what you're talking about, of course, you know, embraces suck, all those things. But 71 lessons from people that really learned it the hard way because pain and discomfort are the best teachers. So if you truly want something that you can put into play that's really going to be valuable, just go through and maybe not all 71 of them will resonate with you or maybe you won't be able to put them all into action right now. But I guarantee there's going to be a handful of them that if you actually put this into play, don't just read it and say, wow, that sounds great. Or yeah, I'm I'm going to quote that post. It's more than that, guys. Knowledge that is acquired but unutilized is the equivalent of ignorance. Mm. So if you truly want to be a better leader, if, you, if you've let it all, you understand people don't do what you say. They do what they see you doing. Mm. And that's what these stories are all about. So if you want to find something that's really going to be applicable to whatever you're going through right now, whether you're a veteran or not, whether you know somebody that's a veteran or not, this is a book you should absolutely pick up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on that thread, you know, uh, General Motel wrote the forward to our book. And uh, that's exactly what he says at the end of his forward. He said, as you go through these stories and you read these stories, realize that you may not resonate and connect with every single one, but I guarantee there's going to be at least one story you can connect to and you can draw a lot of parallels to whether it was your time in service or you're a civilian, you've never experienced it. But there are plenty of life lessons that you can draw parallels to and and really gain perspective outside of just being a civilian. Well, and if you're a civilian, it will also help you better understand the, the veteran. It'll help you better understand, you know, why sometimes veterans get aggravated when other people are late or out of uniform or don't have the required equipment. Because to us, those are the bare minimum, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if you're just barely skating in to work at 9:01 and you're trying to leave at 4:30, you know that shows us that that is an indication of everything else that you're going to do in this job. Mm-hmm. So if you can't show up on time or you're trying to, you know, mess around. And the problem is we see what happens in combat when that happens. We see that other people's lives are in danger and it's not just to our team. It could be to the helo that's that's flying in or it could be reinforcements or or whatever battalion we're trying to do this in tandem with. So there's so much that rides on that. And if that's something that we can control, then we should absolutely be able to have that synchronized so smoothly. And again, when you have that when I first got out, I remember a civilian pulled out in front of me, you know, a young man, about 19, civilian pulls out in front of me, slams on his brakes, no signal, and then turns. And I followed him into the gas station. And I, I was able to kind of pull myself back, but I was just like, I wanted to get out and just grab this kid by the shirt and, and just, you know, it's like, get off your phone. What are you doing? You just, I almost hit you if I wasn't paying attention. And again, just completely oblivious to it now. I parked and then when I got out, I think maybe he could feel it emanating off me because he looked and then he, he kind of scurried into the there. I didn't try to do anything to him, but it was just like, wow, you know, there is a big difference between, and I was only in for a few years. So compared to people that have actually been in combat, felt this experience, didn't know what it is. And here's something else. You mentioned that we've been in this war for 20 years, but for many people, 
here on this in the United States, if we didn't want to be aware of it, we could pretty much just turn a blind eye to it. We had the luxury mm-hmm. of this peace that's being simultaneously provided in war. So we had this luxury of being able to be philosophical about it or ignore it or act like it's not a big deal or act like we shouldn't even be doing these things when in actuality, there's so much more to the story than just we're at war right now or this is a person who's transitioning from a veteran into the civilian sector. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, to be very clear, we've, we've been in some sort of conflict in some support of some nation and constantly taking the fight to our absolutely allies, enemies outside of this 20 years. So, yeah. you know, there have been conflicts before that. However, 9-11 was such a catalyst for the country. It was such a, an incredible event that anybody who's four years or older when 9-11 happened, they remember exactly where they were. They remember yeah. exactly what they were doing. They remember everything about it. But as the years have gone on, they've forgotten that these wars are still going. They've forgotten that there was a reason that we deployed to Afghanistan. And it doesn't matter what your political indifference is or you know how you feel or affiliated with whatever you believe. The fact that there are still people volunteering to serve the nation, that they're continuing to go overseas and, and fight with our allies and, and try and make a nation better, just to me, it just says so much about those who have volunteered and continue to serve. And it's really our fault as a nation if we forget, if we allow people to forget. And so that's the whole point of this 20-year war is to remind people how long this has been going on and to really put into perspective what the length of this war can have and the, the trickle-down effects that we're not going to feel. I mean, we're yeah. maybe in some areas we're feeling them, but we're not going to feel every effect of this war for another decade, two decades, three decades, four decades, till this generation who served the past 20 years passes. That's really when you know we'll, we'll be able to reflect and look back and say, this is how it impacted us as a nation. But collecting these stories and being able to share some of the history, I think, is something that you know, really everybody should do. And, and hopefully it inspires a lot of veterans to share their story, That's it. to talk to their neighbors, to their family members, to their community members, to their coworkers, to whoever it is, but share their perspectives and things that they've learned through service. And it's, it's also something like you were mentioning, I like when you're talking about your story, for us as, as warriors, right? That's sort of our identity. That's what we do. That's who we are. You get up in the morning, 0430, because you got PT, you're going to this, you're doing this, like everything is regimented and everything has a purpose and everything is so high, you know, there's a lot of stakes there. And then to go from that warrior to go into the civilian sector is difficult. And the point that I think you were kind of alluding to, especially when transitioning into the civilian sector is, um, this idea that we can still cultivate that warrior spirit. Mm -hmm. We can still have that routine. We can still execute on that discipline. We can still have an ethos by which we live. But now we get to kind of choose what that is. We get to choose what the mission is. We get to choose where we're trying to go, what we're trying to accomplish, what the objectives are. But for so many of us, it's hard to let go of that Mm -hmm. because this is what we've been. This is always who we've always been. And frankly, who the hell am I now when I get out? Yeah. Well, I think that's what a lot of people struggle with. And again, I did. Yeah. I'll be very clear that I, I struggle with it myself is 
you know, you, you are serving, the mission is defined for you, right? You know, you're told where you need to be, what you need to do, when you need to do it. When you get out, you have to define your own mission, right? You have to define what your actions are and what you're going to do post-service. And it's overwhelming sometimes. Absolutely overwhelming. And it's, uh, it's one of those things that you have to have that drive. And I, I think, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about it multiple times is, is motivation doesn't just be created out of, out of thin air. It's not something that you, you have and you can continue to have. Like you talk about the military all the time. False motivation is better than no motivation. And it's that commitment to do something. It's that, that ability to find that drive deep down in to continue doing something even when you know it sucks and you don't want to do it and you don't have the motivation to do it. And that's something that I, I hope, you know, I'm refining and redefining myself. And uh, I, I hope a lot of veterans don't lose that because that's something that is incredibly powerful from service that you you gain, but you can easily forget. It's, it's like a muscle. It, it never really gets easier. And frankly, some of the things that we do make it easier, but the things that are important are always difficult. Yep, absolutely. And that's the price that you have to pay to, to make it work. And that's why I think people are starting to see more and more now. If you are a veteran who who has that drive, but now when you get out and you say, wait a minute, I can decide what I use this for now. Maybe going to a nine to five job in a cubicle may not be what, I, I know that's not what, I couldn't do that when I got back out. I was like, well, I, I want to go back to these things, but I can't because of my injuries. So now what do I do? Mm-hmm. And the entrepreneur journey is kind of what you have to go into. Could you tell us a little bit about what yours was? Because for somebody that's younger now, if they're in high school, they're just getting out, they're going to college, or they're not sure if they want to go to college, they, there's this myth that if you want to be an entrepreneur or do something on your own, that there's this magical path and there's a light and it's well lit and it's well maintained and there's no mud and there's no you know bushwhacking required and you just walk down it and it's going to go exactly linearly to the objective and you'll know when you get there. But that's not the way it happens. And frankly, there's a lot of chaos in the process of us trying to figure out what the hell even means something to us in the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it, it goes back to defining your mission. You have to know exactly where your end goal is. And maybe it's reshaped throughout the process. And I'll be the first one to tell you that our end goal was not what we originally had at the beginning. It didn't follow a perfect outline of exactly what this book was going to be. The company we created was not a cookie cutter exactly what we wanted it to be at the beginning. But we're incredibly proud and excited about what the future has to hold. Yeah, And it's again, one of those things where if you have a defined mission and you have that commitment that you never forget why you're doing what you're doing, it's always going to be easy to keep getting up every day and keep trying to figure out what mistakes did I make yesterday that I can make sure I don't make today? How can I you know, make sure that I don't forget about filing a use tax form for my state this week. You know, it's, it's the little things as an entrepreneur that you easily can forget because you, you want to be successful, but you've got to do the little things and you've got to really focus on all of it. And the most important thing, you know, that I've learned throughout this process is it's about, it's about that authenticity and just those connections and the people that you have in your network and you continue to build. And it was one of the most annoying things for me getting out of the military. I think every senior leader told me, they were like, network, network, network. Don't forget to network. You got to talk to this person, talk to that person. 
And I wasn't that type of person. I was never the one to just reach out and talk to people all the time. But man, I, I could just imagine what my life would be like today if I took their advice seriously. And thank goodness, Tom, who's part of our business, business partner, he's the primary author for the book. He is a networking genius. That's one it's a machine. Yeah, man. he's an incredible networker. And uh, so I've picked up some tools from him. And it's really not even the networking. Networking still to me is kind of like a, I don't know, it's got something to it, but there's the a negative authentic- connotation to it. Yeah. Yeah. The authenticity and connection. I think yes. those are the more important things is the authenticity and connection. Because to me, the people that try and network and over network, they put on a face. It's, it's fake. It's not really who they are. It's you know them trying to build a connection and get something out of that relationship. To me, it's, I want to know you. I want to know you for you. Let's find ways that we can align together to be successful. And let's align ourselves. And if we don't have anything that aligns together, so be it. We can decide to respectfully disagree or respectfully not work with each other, whatever the case may be. But I've found that Anytime that I can just have a one-on-one conversation and I can have a true conversation, that's how is your life? How is your family? How is your job? How are you doing in this? How are you doing in that? You know, how can I help you? And it's not just about me. That's really where you get a, a solid connection. And that's where we've seen the most growth really in our business. Well, and that's like you said, people use the word authenticity and it loses its authenticity because it's used almost like a buzzword now. Mm-hmm. But the truth is just like what he's saying, guys, Dan's not telling you to network for the sake of networking or have virtual cough with people for the, the sake of it. It's about having a conversation with zero expectations because just like you said, maybe you and I are talking, it's like, you know what, Marcus, I don't know if I'm, if there's anything that we can do together, but I have this buddy, JC Glick, mm-hmm. and I really want to introduce you. And now all of a sudden that becomes real. And anybody that JC's ever, just the way we were set up, We'll be transparent. JC's like, I want you to talk to these guys. And I said, yeah, Roger that. I can't wait. I didn't question him. I didn't have any, there was no ulterior motives other than just trying to get to talk to you guys, learn more about what you're doing, learning about the book. It's not like I came back to him and said, so uh, well, what's the idea behind this? It's like, no, if these are people that are authentic, that you know, love and trust, they're never going to steer you down the wrong path. They're never going to set you up to fail. They're always going to try to elevate you. And what I'm learning now is, more and more through this entrepreneurial journey, the circle gets a little bit smaller, but it's it's a small world in what we're trying to do. Those people that we're trying to find, they all know each other. They're all connected somehow. Mm-hmm. And it's like, whether it be a tertiary engagement or whether it be, it's like, hey, I just talked to so-and-so yesterday. And it's like, really? I didn't know that. And all of a sudden, again, that authenticity comes through. And listen, if you're trying to to build something that's not authentic in this world, whether it be on social media or a business... If it's not real, you're not creating a brand. You're creating a personality that you portray online. And that is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. People can sniff that out. And now you have this fake vanilla bullshit motive. And you're just going to attract fake bullshit vanilla people that are going to take fake vanilla bullshit action on whatever you're trying to give them. So don't be upset if what you're trying to present to people isn't being received well, or the people that are trying to consume your product or support you because those aren't the people that you should be talking to anyway, because you're not even being real in the first place. Mm -hmm. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think 
that's why narratives get created. Exactly. And that's how it happens is because you're you're trying to conform to something, whatever it is. You're trying to find your niche, your tribe, your whoever it is. And don't get me wrong, tribes are incredibly powerful and they're there for a reason. And teams are there for a reason. Of course. But the most powerful team in the world is one who doesn't care what you do at the end of the day, as long as you're there to work and support each other. And so when you can be authentic and truthful and share, you know, let's not say your deepest, darkest secrets, but, you know, get to almost that point, that's when you can have the most amount of trust and belief in each other. And it shouldn't just happen in teams. It should happen also with everybody that you connect to outside of your team. And again, I, you know, I could have easily told people, oh, no, I had a great transition. I did well. I love school. I, you know, I, I did incredibly well. I knew exactly what I was doing. It was all my military experience that got me through it. You know, I could write a book about how I used all of my leadership and military experience to get me to be successful in school. That wasn't it at all. And I'm okay saying that. And I'm okay telling even people that I went to school with that like, hey, I failed you. You know, I could have done more. Yes, we were successful, but I could have done so much more to make us all better. And those are the types of conversations and truthfulness that you need to bring to people to show that, you know, you're trying to grow. And I, I feel like people cling to that more. They want to see somebody go through, you know, their failures and successes and and just see that it's it's not all, you know, sunshine and rainbows. It's yeah. it's it's the struggle to get to success that really is what people connect to. And it's very easy for somebody to put you know, you or anybody that's successful as an entrepreneur on a pedestal and say, well, that's just him. You know, he's a, he's an ex ranger, you know, of course he's, you know, going to be able to do this, but just because you were successful in one arena does not necessarily mean that it will transition well into other arenas. The example I love to use is, uh, I joined the infantry when I was 38 enlisted. So I'm competing against guys, literally half my age, all the brown hats that are yelling at me are younger than me. And you know, they're, they're coming at you. And it was like, some of these young guys would have the physicality. They could outrun me. They could outpush up or pull up me or outruck me. But yet when it came to, okay, what do you do under stress? How do you act whenever you're sleep deprived? Mm-hmm. What happens when you haven't had food or water for a while? What happens when all of a sudden, listen, we have an HVT and now you have to begin to execute a plan now and now pivot from that plan and now adapt. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to be physically strong because you, you're just naturally physically strong and you've never really been pushed. But when they face genuine adversity for the first time in their lives and it's in a lot of pressure and there's a lot riding on it, that's when people come apart at the seams, whether it be in combat, in training for combat, in the real world, in companies and relationships. That's where you really start to figure out, okay, what is this person made of? What am I made of? Adversity mm-hmm. doesn't really show us who we are. It strips away what we're not. Yeah. And that's why it's so important to be able to be, like you were saying, those conversations. If we don't know who we are, it's really hard to open up and be honest with somebody else, especially if they're bearing their soul or they're willing to do that for us. So it's almost what you have to do to go to another level as a person or to serve others, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Again, you know, there's a lot to vulnerability when you can open yourself up to others. There's a reason why there's, you know, it doesn't matter what 12-step program or whatever self-help program you're going through. There's a reason why they do it in groups. Yeah. It's so that you can show vulnerability to others around you and it breaks down the, the walls of what, you know, people don't want to share, really open up about their past or even what they're going through today. Yeah. And that 
I've learned again, I wasn't great at it. I actually was probably terrible at it as a leader in the military. I was not a very vulnerable leader. And I'm feeling that's the case for a lot of leaders in the military, especially young leaders. Mm -hmm. But as you age and you get older, you realize how much value there is to opening up to people and sharing that connection and, and just getting to a different level of just the day-to-day water cooler talk that you know you may see in the corporate world. It's it's really when you connect and you're vulnerable to somebody too, you see how much more people are willing to work for you and work with you. They want to. Like people are always trying to find, hey, how can I work with this person again? Cause I want to get on whatever project they're working on. And that's because you open yourself up and you want to be there for your your teammates or or whatever the case may be. But there's just a lot to that, to just opening yourself up and, and feeling that connection. I, I absolutely agree. Speaking of vulnerability, I always ask people if there was, if they could share an adversity that they went through and it can be whatever that is to you or whatever comes to mind. But I've never met somebody that's been successful that hasn't faced adversity in some way, shape or form. And frankly, it never really ends. It's like the hero's journey. Even when you get to a certain level, mm-hmm you have to level up again. And that means you have to be willing to push again. Can you tell us about an adversity that you've gone through that at the time you felt like you wouldn't be able to get through it? But when you get on the other side, there was a, a tremendous gift for you. Yeah. Um, probably the the one, and this is a long journey. So I'll, I'll, I'll try and keep it short. To take but, the time. We have all kinds um, of time. The the reason my transition was so difficult for me, why it was, it was literally closing a book and starting anew, is that when I got out, it wasn't strictly by choice. It was by choice. Ultimately, I made the decision. Me and my wife did. But when I was serving, you know, I I advanced pretty quick in my career. I was in E6 by, I think, four and a half years. I was a squad leader in a little over or just under four years. Wow. And so I was doing incredibly well. I loved being a ranger. I I was great at it. I loved my job. And I was incredibly fit. Like they they called me a gazelle because I would outrun everybody. My favorite thing was breaking people off in a run and just (laughs) watching them suffer and suck and laugh at them while I'm running, you know, circles around them. But uh, for the first time ever, when I was in um, ALC in the advanced leaders course, I fell out of a run. I had a pounding, stabbing, horrible pain in my chest. And I could not figure out what it was. I thought of a run. I ran the previous morning, no problem, at the front of the pack, like always, you know. And uh, so when I fell out, the cadre were like, you know, what's going on? You know, why are you falling out and everything? I literally had to sit on the curb. It was that painful. Wow. I was like, I don't know what's happening, but I have this shooting pain in my chest. And so they immediately loaded me up in the van, took me to the ER, started getting assessed. Long story short, went through a lot of tests and everything you could think of, echocardiograms, chest scans, all these things. Found out I had an atrial septum defect, which is not uncommon. Yeah, People typically have it as a child and you know it's, it's something they live with their entire life and they never know about it. But for some people who go through some extreme stress, it can open up that defect more. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so... That's ultimately what happened. What's interesting is I, uh, I, you know, I read David Goggin's story. Can't hurt me. That's exactly. Yeah. And uh, he had the exact same thing happen to him, but our experiences were very different. So luckily I wasn't to the point to where I needed emergency heart surgery like he did, but they definitely told me, they said, you know, this is something you're going to have to pay attention to think about, you know, whatever the case might be. 
And what's interesting, not to anybody's fault or whatever the case may be, is like an ASD should have medboarded me out of the military. I should have been done. But they gave me the choice. They said, this is something you're going to have to live with, something that's probably going to carry with you. You're probably going to have to have heart surgery at some point, but it's your choice whether you get out now or not. And I did another deployment. It was probably my hardest deployment at, you know, out of the six as well. And ultimately me and my wife decided, you know, we can't keep doing this. I don't want to live in fear of, you know, when am I going to be taken out of the fight because of my heart? You know, right. when am I going to be a debilitation to my team? That's, that's it right there. If you listen to how he said that, how am I going to be taken out of the fight? How will I fail my team? Mm-hmm. And it would have been easy to be selfish and just act like that wasn't there and not even tell anybody what was going on and just say, oh, well, they did tests and I'm fine. I just did take yep. some razor candy. I'm just going to drive on, suck it up. I'm going to rub some dirt on it, drink some water. I'll be fine. But um, changing your socks is not enough no. when it comes to that situation. And it's um, it takes a lot of courage to do that because yeah. especially, like you said, being a PT stud where you're running around people, it's like, man, that was your... That was your jam, getting the run on, getting breaking people off. So to have that thing kind of taken from you, mm-hmm. that's sobering. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting is I served two more years in the, in the National Guard teaching OCS while I was going to school. And I had to go through, uh, um, I can't remember what it's called again, but basically mission readiness to see if you're deployable. Right. And I went through that. And uh, the people who were assessing me, I told them what was wrong with me. With you know, I had a knee or an ankle issue. I had a shoulder issue, like from all the jumps and everything that I've been yeah. through. And the lady looked at me. She's like, "Why are you still serving? Like, why are you in the military? You should be out right now. Like, you you should be med boarded." And I was like, uh, "I don't know. I just you know wanted to continue to serve and do at least finish out my time." And uh, honestly, I probably would have continued to serve in the National Guard in some respect, but. Uh, the military is weird and I was getting disability plus I was serving the national guard. And when I was doing that, I was actually losing money. Uh, they were taking money from me. So yeah. I was like, I can't lose money anymore. So I decided not to, and I, I finally separated, but uh, again, closing that book and opening a new, it took a while to yeah. go back to my previous book, open it back up and stitch the two together and realize that there's, there's one book that's, to my life and that it was just a chapter. It wasn't a new book. Maybe, maybe there are books in a series if, if I wanted to put it all together, but there was a lot of adversity there. A lot of things that I was, I was a little upset about. I didn't necessarily want to get out. I felt like I left a lot of things behind, but yeah. eight years later, I realized that those things that I left behind, I need to pick up and carry forward with me. And you, and you have the capacity to do that now. Maybe you wouldn't have if you stayed in, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was the inspiration behind the book. I was like, I need to share my story. I'm tired of what I'm seeing in the media. I'm tired of the only conversation that's being talked about is the 22 a day that 22 you know, soldiers or, or uh, service members are killing themselves a day. Is like, that cannot be the only message that's out there. It cannot be what our generation is known for. It needs to be something else. And it needs to be these, these small victories. Like everybody who served has some small victory. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's getting through boot camp or it's, you know, fighting a hundred Taliban and, and, you know, coming out the other end, whatever it is, all these are incredible success stories that need to be shared. And it's something that you don't experience unless you've served in the military. And you had a great quote 
that I didn't put in the intro because I already wrote a 12-minute intro, but you said something to the effect of people don't really understand what the veteran brings to the table. They don't understand what that leadership looks like, what they bring to their team, what they bring to the objective, what they bring to the the entire thing they're trying to bring to the table. So if they don't see that and they just, again, if I'm hiring somebody or if I'm looking, I'm a civilian and I, if you say veteran and the only thing I think about is, oh, 22 of these guys killed themselves a day, that puts sort of a negative connotation on this veteran, you know, was he in combat? You know, what was your MLS? You know, I mean, all those kind of things where, yes, there, there are definitely, you know, lasting effects, but veterans bring so much to the table that that's not the thing you should be worried about. You should be saying, why am I not hiring this person? What does everybody want now? Leadership. Mm-hmm. And so if you can lead people in the military, I guarantee that if you bring them in, into a company and you give them the ability to connect with those people, you can inspire the kind of leadership that you need as opposed to just telling people to do something or being a manager that just disseminates information where there's no connection, where there's no real life experience. And again, when you're in the heat of battle, that's the kind of, that adversity binds you to the people that you're with and it helps you truly focus on what's important because when the pressure's on, you strip away all the stuff that's not important. All the bullshit gets hacked away and you go right to the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you said it, you know, the two mo- most important things that to me, the military breeds in people is leadership and commitment to team is that ability to connect and, and have that mission first mentality and being committed to the team and then being successful and leading from that example. And it's, it's something that is really hard to teach, but you can gain it so quickly through adversity. And it's something that you get in the military because they will test you over and over and over again and give you more and more adversity to make sure that you are tested and developed as a good leader. And that's the thing. Adversity is the litmus test. It, because everybody, again, with entrepreneurs, for example, it, it looks kind of sexy if you're looking on social media or Instagram or LinkedIn and, oh, this person's an entrepreneur or a CEO. But they don't see that this just means that now you're working even harder. Now you're just like you were mentioning before, because somebody may see a person who's successful already, you know, a person who's been optional for 10, 15, 20 years. And so what they're telling you to do is what they're doing right now, but they can hire a team out to do all of these things and literally throw money at problems. But if you're like what you were saying before, where again, you know, with taxes or getting, making sure that everything is the way it's supposed to be, you're making sure that you're, you're making payroll. That's much different than a person who's already a multimillionaire that's like, oh, just hire a team to do this and hire a team to do that and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, don't worry about your weaknesses, just focus on your strengths. It's like, well, you may not have the luxury of doing that in the beginning. So mm-hmm. understand that what got those people there may not be what you're doing yet. And you may have to wear different hats. You may have to work in a regular job and then work on this thing as a side hustle until you can transition them out. While I was running my book and getting ready for my TED talk, I was still teaching martial arts full time. Mm-hmm. And then trying to maintain the the resilience necessary to to write a book, and then to then say, okay, do, can I put this book on hold and still make sure I can do a TED talk properly? And then realizing that I couldn't serve two masters in that, so I had to put the book down and just make a TED talk that I thought was actually going to be a good representation of what I was trying to express. So instead of being a six month process, the book was a year and a half. But I'm so glad that I did because if I had tried to half ass any of it or cut corners. 
we would never be, you and I wouldn't be speaking right now, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that idea of compartmentalizing and, and really it's more of task organization. It's yeah. being organized and knowing what is on your list and prioritizing those things. That's something I teach people, you know, my, in my day-to-day job all the time. As I say, have you put your to-do list together? Have you organized it in a way that you can accomplish these tasks in a day? And if you haven't, then you need to break down that, those tasks more to make sure that you're accomplishing something, that you're yeah. getting one step closer to whatever your final objective is, and that you can prioritize the things that you know you have to get done versus the things you'd like to get done, and then create the space for the things you'd like to get done. And that's the most important thing is, is just realizing how many hours you have in a day, how much time you have. And sometimes you have to do exactly like you said, you have to put something off and that's okay. People have to be okay with that. And as, a, as an entrepreneur, everybody wants to start their business and it be successful tomorrow. But that's not how things happen. It's very rare that somebody develops some new product or some new service that a VC immediately attaches to and decides that they're going to fund you. Like you have to put in the hard work and effort to make sure that no matter what you're building, that you're constantly moving forward, that you're constantly building towards it. And that's something that, you know, doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur or if you work in a normal nine to five, you can build success in your job so quickly if you can understand those steps to just task organize, prioritize, realize where your hours are being spent. And it's something that, Honestly, again, the military trains and does incredibly well. Yeah, and a day in the military is much longer than an entrepreneur's day. I know that it feels like it if you're doing 12 or 14 hours, but military days, it's not really a day. It's just a number of hours that you're, mm-hmm. uh, you're kind of online, so to speak. So it's, um, those are powerful words. And I, I also love how you were talking about truly prioritizing things. Because when we have to be very specific about what we're doing, now we don't have the luxury of jumbling it around or pontificating about what we should be doing because that's a, a way to just waste time. Yep. And then it's like, oh, well, it's almost 10 o'clock. You know, I'm going to be going to lunch at 11. And now they take their foot off the gas and now they're on their phone, checking social media, looking at emails again mm-hmm. when they've already checked them like 20 minutes ago. It's like, you have an hour, knock this shit out, get it done. And that's where, again, that's where the entrepreneur takes action as opposed to other people are waiting for people to tell them what's the action. But what do I do if this happens? It's like, man, figure it out. <laughs> I, I can't hold your hand all the time to get it done. Yeah, I have a, a constant running list of things to do. And if I hit a roadblock, a speed bump, whatever it is, somebody else is standing in my way of getting a task done, mm-hmm. I go to the next task, get the next thing done. Because when you put off doing something, it's not that it, won't get done, especially if you have something tied to it, like you know you have an objective at work or as an entrepreneur, you need to make x number of sales or you need to get hit some deadline or you need to ship something in time or whatever the case may be. The time you decide that you're not going to do that just means that you're condensing your time somewhere else or you're not putting full effort into it yeah yeah it's a uh, it's Parkinson's law, this idea that the amount of time that we have the activity that we have will expand into whatever that time frame is. So if you give somebody a week to get something done, it takes them a week. But if you say, I need it by the end of the day today, it may be tough for them and they may have to push a lot of buttons and pull a lot of levers, but by God, they get it done by end of day. Mm-hmm. And that shows them what they can accomplish when they have a true deadline 
when they have true urgency and when they have a true compelling why to get that mission accomplished. Yeah, it's a it's actually a very interesting technique that I think they they do in the military on purpose. Oh yeah, <laughs> is they they give you an impossible standard to accomplish in a in a time duration that you can you physically are not going to be able to do it. There's no way you can get it done. But it's not about getting it 100% right. It's pushing to realize how much effort it takes to get a task done so that you know now how much time it's going to take you to do it. And realize that, again, like you said, if you give somebody a week to fill up that, they're going to fill up that entire week with that task. But if you give them a day, it may not be 100% done at the end of the day, but they're going to give it to you. And then you can use it the next day as a training lesson and say, here's where you missed and here's the gaps. But then they'll get get it done by the end of day two, guaranteed. Whereas if you give them the full week, it's, again, the whole seven days are wasted. That's it. And I didn't mean to interrupt you. And it's also an indication of what we're really capable of, right? Mm -hmm. It's like you said in infantry school and they're making you do stupid stuff. It's like there were a couple of times when we were actually able to accomplish the task because we were able to, to do everything properly. But even then, I think it was also that resilience, like, when we're at that that final percentage and it's like, you know, we're not going to make it. You could see some guys like kind of slump. They're like, oh, we're not going to make it anyway. That's not what the point was. The point was, what are you going to do now? Like, this yeah. may be the separation between success and failure. We may not even have to get to that deadline. We may have to just get here. And if we get close enough, maybe we have a chance to survive. Maybe our buddies get to survive. And that's the, the beauty of those tasks, again, they're impossible to get to, but until you actually give everything you have, you have no idea what there is in you. Exactly. And you don't know what's in your team. There's so much value in having a team and giving an objective to a team. There's a reason in ranger school that they give impossible tasks to leaders all the time. And it's because they want to see how well they are at task organization, leadership, and inspiring people to do work when they don't want to. So, you know, you're sleep and, and, and food deprived, you're literally at your wits end, you're angry at everybody. But guess what? If you don't get it done, you're kicked out, you're done, you're over, you know, it's, it's over for you. So when you have that impossible deadline and people who don't want to work for you, but you realize, okay, we still have to keep moving. You can motivate people, you can get them to do incredible things, and you can it really truly inspire action in people with just realizing what, you know, what the task is at hand. And sometimes, like you said, when we're, when we're the leader and we're tired like that, because if we can express what the mission is and what the objective is and what the deadline is and what the metric is, even on those times when we are tired and we don't think we can make it, our team will still have that momentum and they will drag us to excellence if we can't get there on our own, if we build the right team and if we're leading the way we're supposed to. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. They'll give us the momentum to go on when we don't know if we can. And that's, that's the beauty of team, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning is that false motivation is better than no motivation. And so when you can, uh, when you can finally find that you can push through anything, you truly can, you know, the, the mind quits before the body ever does. And you can truly decide that you can push yourself through something. It's a, it's incredible the feats that people can get through and and impossible deadlines and impossible you know uh, feats of strength or whatever the you know whatever the obstacle is in front of you you can get it done as long as you don't give up. Yeah, the only way you can beat a man is uh, two ways: if he gives up or if he dies. Right. That's right. That's it. Bruce Lee said, "There are no limits; there are only plateaus." And if you give up in the middle of the plateau, that becomes your limit. 
So yep. we had to push. Man, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for being on. Where can we send people to get incredible copies of this book? And where can we continue to support what you guys are working on with the 20-Year War? Yeah, so um, people can go pre-order the book now at 20yearwar.com. We actually have two different versions of the book. We have a standard edition, which is the book standalone by itself. And then we also have a limited edition that comes with a signed edition, comes with a slipcase, a custom challenge coin, a made in America uh, leather patch, leather American flag patch to commemorate the 20-year war. And people can pre-order it now and get it by the end of August. And then the general public can hopefully see the book in their local stores or still pre-order online, seeing it in the local stores by mid-September. Beautiful. Dan Blakely, thank you so much for being here, my friend. I learned so much and I, I cannot wait to continue to talk with you and learn from you in the future. Absolutely. And I, I hope to continue to stay connected to you as well. Absolutely, my friend. That's that's always going to happen, I think. And now that I've talked to you and met everybody, I can't see how I couldn't. So. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions. Not words.